From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. The story of the UK is an economy that has got real momentum. What is broken can be repaired. What is ruined can be rebuilt. UK inflation is becoming much more homegrown. We have huge potential as an economy in the UK. This is a time to tell Israel there is a path to peace. Our plan for the British economy is working, but the work is not done. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Now, if you're a regular listener to us, you'll know just how important the economy is to this election and what a pivotal moment we're at for the economy. Yeah, and for the Bank of England, it's never been more true after the recent wave of economic data. We're in recession, inflation still twice the Bank of England's target and higher than expected wage growth suggests it could be hard to bring down. So we wanted to get the view of someone who's been charting the UK economic journey for more than 30 years. Andy Haldane was Chief Economist at the Bank of England until 2021. He's now CEO at the Royal Society of Arts. We started by asking him when the Bank of England should cut rates. I think it probably should have already, to be honest. Um, when I look at the economy right now, including this week's data, lots of data this week. Um, but the big pieces were, I think, that inflation a touch below expectations, the economy a touch weaker than expectations. I think the balance of risks between those two things has changed quite a lot over the last six months, with the risks for me now firmly skewed towards the economy Mm -hmm. and towards the downside. And that's why I think, you know, for me, this is the time that the bank should be considering very seriously withdrawing some of the tightening that it put in place over the course of the last 18 months to cushion those risks to the economy at a time where inflation now is on a falling at a feral click, you know, and I think set to hit target by perhaps Easter time and then remain around target. So for me, I think now is the time to be speaking a little bit more firmly about the need for cutting sooner rather than later. Well, we're already in a technical recession. Mm. Are you worried that this could get even deeper if the Bank of England doesn't turn to cutting rates sooner? I think that's where the balance of risks lies, yes. I mean, it's true that the data for this year so far, such as it is, is a bit brighter than the tail end of last year. The the jumping-off point last year to this year looks to be a more positive one. Surveys of businesses, surveys of consumers... Uh, surveys of of housing, uh, all pointing to a somewhat firmer start to the year. But I still think we're looking at a year at best of anemic growth, with the risks to the outlook still skewed pretty firmly on the downside. So for me, the case for putting in place some upfront early insurance 
on the monetary policy side is strong and strengthening. And I'm fearful we leave that insurance a little too late mm. in the year. So for you, is, is signalling uh, an easing enough for now, or does it need to be a right cut in March? Well, I think the process of signalling has, has begun. Uh, not very full-throated signalling uh, just yet, and I think more perhaps could have been done on that front. Of course, words only take you so far. Ultimately, uh, for to shift, to really shift people's expectations out there, I don't just mean in financial markets, I mean also uh, on the high street, among households of cheaper mortgage borrowing costs coming. The best way of signalling that to the wider world, to the real economy, if you like, to households and businesses, is by doing it mm. rather than talking about uh, doing it. Uh, and that, I think, should be taken a bit more seriously than has been the case, not just by the bank, but by central banks globally. Is there a risk that both on the way into this inflation crisis and on the way out of it, the Bank of England's forgotten that there's this lag in monetary transmission? In other words, that people need to refinance their mortgages before the impact of interest rates filters through to the economy? Well, I hope not. Um, I mean, the bank shouldn't have forgotten about the long and variable lags that accompany monetary policy, uh, lags that have probably become slightly longer and slightly more variable over the past decade, probably, as we move towards more fixed-rate mortgages uh, in, the, uh, in the UK. I mean, we know very well, don't we, that you know perhaps one and a half million households this year will face a significant stepping up in their mortgage bills, perhaps around, on average, a couple of thousand pounds. That's sure to squeeze the real incomes of households that are already well below water relative to where they were a couple of years ago. Households feel poorer, and the reason they feel poorer is because they are poorer, and that will make a bad situation worse. The other relevant factor, though, I'd say, is that I mean, the surprising thing about last year was not how weak spending by households was, but how strong it was. Given the extent of the squeeze on real incomes, it was surprising how robust and resilient household spending was. And the reason that was possible, what reconciles the arithmetic here, is the fact that households here and the US and the euro area ran down the savings mm. that had been involuntarily accumulating during COVID. Now, as best we can tell, you know, that savings pool is now a puddle. It is reduced materially. And therefore, you know, households this year can't return to the well of savings mm. to support their spending. So when that fatter mortgage bill lands on people's doorsteps over the course of this year, it's much more likely we'll need to cut spending to make ends meet. And that's why, for me, the balance of risks is to the downside, and that's why those long and variable lags call for the bank acting sooner rather than later. What's the risk if the bank doesn't do that? You've outlined stagnation as being the best case scenario. What's the worst case scenario? I think the worst case would be one in which you know we get to maybe the middle of the year. Uh, inflation is back to a round target. It's stopped being spoken about 
uh, in the media, uh, in financial markets, uh, in the pubs and on the high streets, which I think happens when inflation gets to around 2 or 3%. But we find the economy has hit a further soft spot, that spending is tailing down, that confidence is tailing away, that companies are hunkering down ahead of an election and they're spending. And we find ourselves um, you're facing up to inflation at target, but the economy underwater. And that's bad news, obviously, for jobs and the economy. It's also pretty bad news for central banks' credibility, though. It's one thing to have missed inflation on the way up, which happened. It's quite another to then have crushed the economy on the way down. I mean, that double blow to credibility is one, if I were a central banker in my old job, I will be looking to avoid. And for me, that was, that's what speaks to the insurance policy now. Well, on another front of credibility, it seems like markets have just tuned out what central bankers are saying. They're really just looking at the data. And it comes back to the question of communications, doesn't it? If you were rating your old colleague, the governor's comms through this inflation crisis on a scale of naught to 10, where would you put it? I, I, I should avoid um, the uh, putting scores on the doors uh, for my former colleagues. Um, but I think any all the central banks now, I think, would accept that both in their words and in their action, they were not as foot sure as foresighted as, as they should and could and should have been. That uh, monetary policy was held a little bit too loose for a little bit too long. Now, that isn't the main reason inflation picked up, but it was a contributing factor. And certainly uh, put a bit of a dent in their credibility. One that I'm very keen is avoided putting a double dent in 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 future. Um, so I'll 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 resist the temptation to to put a number, uh, but I think there's lessons for every central bank to learn on that front about you know I think both communicating clearly, but also fessing up. Part of the process of credibility building is that when you do miss something, to acknowledge that and to learn from it. And, and that builds credibility, doesn't dent credibility. I think there's probably lessons on both fronts, not just for the bank, but probably for every central bank around the planet to learn. And does that learning front have to go further than hand-wringing? Does it need to involve a change in what the bank is trying to achieve, a change in the inflation target, for example, or a switch to, to nominal GDP, or to rethink how we do central banking? Hmm. So those are big questions. I mean, um, I think on a medium-term horizon, there might well be a case for looking afresh at the monetary framework that overall, the inflation targeting framework in the UK and elsewhere, overall has served us spectacularly well. I mean, that's an important point to say. I say that in part, you know, in a self-serving way because I was a bit involved in setting it up at the outset. But nonetheless, you know, in the grand scheme of things, especially UK monetary policy, this is a framework that survived the test of time and has served it very well. So I'd be very reluctant to junk it without some cast-iron alternative in mind. I also think at this moment, uh, this would not be the point to junk this framework with inflation having deviated above target for uh, a period. What I would say, though, is that the flexibility in the existing framework has not been as much used as much as it could and should be. Now, part of that flexibility is around how quickly you bring inflation back to target when it's deviated above. 
It's absolutely within the remit of the bank to say, look, this has been a nasty shock uh, to energy prices and food prices. We will bring inflation back to heel somewhat more slowly mm. than is the norm. Not on a typical 12 to 18 month horizon, but, but perhaps a two or three year horizon. And the reason we'll do that is to protect the economy. And that, I think, is a really important element of the policy strategy right now. Let's just take our time. But is that not something that's quite difficult to sell to the general public when people are worried about being able to make their ends of the month to say, it's just going to take a bit longer for inflation to come down. Sorry if you can't afford your mortgage or your food shopping. And the Bank of England's got one job. Well, I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't. I mean, if you look at the remit, yes, it's about hitting the inflation target, but it's also subject to basically protecting the economy. And in a, it, it's fundamentally different between inflation at 10 where the public are rightly screaming blue murder about the pain that's been inflicted on them from the cost of living, and inflation at three. Inflation at three, it stops being that topic of conversation among the public. The squeeze is far less painful. What I'm suggesting is, once we're down to three, hold your horses. The line is shared. Mission accomplished the at three? Sorry? Mission accomplished at three? Not mission accomplished, but we don't need necessarily at haste to go that extra mile from three to two, we can take our time because we know it'll be painful for the economy. And guess what? The economy right now could do without that pain. So if that means getting from three to two over a two to three year horizon rather than a 12 to 18 month horizon, that for me will be a price worth paying for preserving jobs and stimulating growth. Just while we're on ways that the Bank of England could do its job better, of course, it's all relevant because Ben Bernanke, the ex-Fed chair, is reviewing central bank communications and forecasting. We've had all this talk of mountains, table mountain. <laughs> Isn't that basically a dot plot? Is it time for a dot plot at the Bank of England? So, I've, I've, I mean, when I was on the inside thinking about this, um, I, uh, I, you know, I, I thought about the pros and cons of dot plot dot plots then uh, uh, as well uh, and I understand the case for that you know it's a, it's a clearer form of what Mark Carney used to call forward guidance it's a numerical form of forward guidance now the problem it faces and the problem indeed all forward guidance faces is that as much as you say it's a conditional statement it depends on the economy it's not a forecast really it's just a direction of travel the markets don't take it that way. They want precision. Uh, and the risk is that your dot plot ends up looking like a promise. And then when you deviate from your perceived promise, you're criticized for having changed your tune and misled markets. I've seen that happen a million and one times in the course of setting forward guidance. I think dot plots make that more likely rather than less likely. So for me, it's a good thing that central banks do offer some indication of what might lie ahead beyond the immediate meeting. This isn't quite one meeting at a time. But equally, I think that guidance is best offered in qualitative, directional terms rather than precise, quantitative terms. Because the alternative, I think, just risks over-interpretation and over-precision that's actually denting credibility rather than accreting it. Can central bankers tune out of what's going on in politics? 
we're in an election year. We know that the polls suggest there's going to be a change of government. That means a change in fiscal policy. If you're sitting in the Bank of England, can you just do you have to think about what that might mean? Or can you just sort of pretend it's not happening until it does? Well, I think you have to um, certainly try to tune it out. Easier said than done. I accept that completely. And certainly when it comes to a key dimension of that political debate, the setting of fiscal policy, it's not the job of the bank. It couldn't and it shouldn't speculate on future policy. It could only condition its forecasts and policy on, on current fiscal policy. Um, so, I mean, to an extent, fiscal policy, of course, is itself shaped by politics. So the bank's forecasts are shaped by politics, but actual policy rather than politics per se. And that'll be, the, that'll be true over the course of this year as, uh, as well, that even if you felt, as some do, that the government's fiscal plans were fiscal fiction, nonetheless, the fiction is put into the forecasts. Do you agree with that, by the way? I think it'd be. I think looking at the scale of the squeeze on non-protected departments in the out years of the autumn statement, I find it hard to believe that degree of squeeze is consistent with maintaining public services at an adequate level from a low base and supporting the economy. So I think there is a degree of fiction in, in those projections, yes. But there is a case for cutting taxes, isn't there? Because the OECD says UK living standards have lagged other countries since the pandemic hit, and part of it is down to the biggest increase in the tax burden on households compared to other countries. So isn't it responsible fiscally to cut taxes at the spring budget? And if you were the Chancellor, are there any taxes you would cut? So if you think back to the tax cuts that we did have at the time of the autumn statement last year, uh, they came in in two stripes. There were some that were consumer-facing in the form of the NICS reduction and some that were business-facing in the form of uh, tax release, uh, relief for business investment. Now, uh, as not all arms of policy, fiscal policy are equal, not so that's true of tax cuts as well. Uh, it's certainly true that the UK needs growth because it hasn't got any. We've seen that from the, the data this week. Um, but what we need is sustainable growth growth of the medium term. We don't need a sugar rush of growth. Uh, we need sustained growth. And that means investment. That means uh, fiscal policy that stimulates investment, not consumption. And of those two tax measures last year, the consumer-facing one principally would boost consumption, and the business one would principally boost investment. So if it were me, and I had an inclination towards cutting taxes, I'd do much more of the second than I would of the first. The investment-facing one rather than the consumption-facing one. Not as much of a vote winner. No, um, but ultimately, as I say, you know, fiscal policy ought to be set for the medium term uh, and for stabilising the public finances and supporting growth. And the best measures for supporting growth are measures that stimulate investment, not ones that jet-propel consumption. Well, then when you look at the, the Labour Party's plans, for example, you know, Keir Starmer has scaled back the, the £28 billion target, as we know, on, on green spending. Do the spending commitments inspire confidence for you? Does it look like they have a plan to stimulate investment? Well, I mean, there still is uh, within the pared back green prosperity plan uh, plans, 
something of a scaling up of investment, an extra £5 billion per year relative to what is there currently. So that's certainly directionally right uh, in terms of making that investment uh, in, broadly speaking, green tech and green jobs in a way that's good for growth. Truth be told, um, you know, I had a I had a preference for the earlier vintage of that Green Prosperity Plan, which was a rather bigger one, the full fat 28 billion uh, version. When that was first hatched, um, even with the fiscal constraints, you still think it's a good plan? I do, because the way you solve fiscal problems uh, is by stimulating growth. And the way you stimulate growth is through investment. Uh, and the thought that you can um, austerity or out of a fiscal hole is, is also a fiction, I think. So yes, uh, I'm not a great fan of the current fiscal rules. I think they penalise the investment we need to stimulate growth. And it's ultimately by growing the denominator, that is GDP, rather than shrinking the numerator, the fiscal deficit, that you lower debt. And the risk is you take actions that look smart short term, but which derail growth longer term and actually make a bad debt situation even worse. And I'm keen to avoid that. Uh, and one, you know, the Green Prosperity Plan and its full fat version, I think, would have been just the shot in the arm investment wise that other countries internationally are putting in. Just look at the impact the Inflation Reduction Act in the US has had for their rates of growth and their rates of employment. We'd have given our eye teeth for that level of growth and that degree of job uh, creation. And I'd love to have seen something closer in spirit to that here, even if it meant some tweak to our fiscal rules. So I take it then you wouldn't endorse Rachel Reeves for Chancellor as Mark Carney did? Well, it's not my job as a, as a God-fearing public servant, Lizzie, to be endorsing anyone politically, and I wouldn't do that. Uh, I'm a public servant. That means what I'm about is policies, not politics or politicians. So it really wouldn't be the right thing to do for me to go all in with any party. I've never done that. I've always tried to offer my best advice to anyone of any political colour. I'll keep on doing that as, as well. Um, equally, um, I do think we need bold and big policies to tackle some of the structural headwinds we face economically and societally. And, and my job as a, as, as a technocrat, as an economist, is trying to serve up my best ideas on how to do that. But if she becomes Chancellor and she asks you to be the Bank of England Governor, would you say no? Oh, I think those are all very far-fetched suggestions. So, um, you know, never say never. But um, for the moment, my priority is trying to provide, do the best I can to give the best ideas to whoever's listening uh, about how best we get this economy moving. Funnily enough, you know, this has been seen as a bit of a week of doom and gloom. And I get, I get that. Why? Because the R word is back. But when I travel around the UK, which I do a lot, actually, partly to cheer myself up, to be honest, um, I see real energy sometimes latent energy, uh, among local leaders, business leaders, government leaders, civil society leaders. So actually, I think there is fantastic growth potential across the UK. 
that just needs to be unlocked and untapped. And, you know, an incoming government of whatever hue, by emboldening and empowering those local leaders with a slug of money to help, I think really could tap into something tremendously positive and put the UK on a much higher growth trajectory. This is growth. It's a national plan for growth built from the bottom up. And it's there. I know it's there at the local level. So, you know, I'll be making the case for that to whoever wants to listen because we still, and we should not forget, UK PLC does lots of things brilliantly. We have brilliant people. We have brilliant businesses. We have brilliant universities. And just unleashing a bit of their potential would make all the difference in the world. The single biggest and best thing a politician could do right now is to unlock that potential to you. As I say, the most powerful thing a powerful person can do is to give that power away. So my advice to an incoming chancellor, whoever she or he may be, would be to do just that. Okay, Andy Haldane, Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts and former Chief Economist of the Bank of England, thank you very much for speaking to us. Well, Andy Haldane, never backward in coming forward, doesn't mince his words, does he? Very clear that he thinks rate cuts should already be beginning, that there's a credibility issue at the Bank of England already established on the way into the crisis. Could they try to make it better on the way out of the crisis? And really interesting to get his view on that £28 billion pledge dropped by Labour, scaled back on green investment. Is it that Labour isn't going to be radical enough to win a big majority at this election when the clear choice is now to focus on fiscal responsibility? I'd keep an eye on Andy Haldane as we uh, get towards this election and afterwards, in fact, Stephen. Do we see him popping up as the Bank of England governor? <laughs> you was, tried your best I with did, that, Lizzie. but I'm not going to rule him out as a runner and rider in the future. And also, maybe we'll see him in a role, if the polls are right, if Labour gets in, advising Rachel Reeves one to watch definitely that's it from us for today if you like the programme don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by Chris Pitt and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain I'm Lizzie Verdon and I'm Stephen Carroll this is Bloomberg Bloomberg UK Politics listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.